Welcome to series two of the Big Beatles Sort Out. In the first series, I, author and musician Gary Abbott, ranked all the Beatles' core catalogue releases with the help of my Beatles expert brother Paul. In series two, we have already looked at the anthology, the songs they gave away, and live at the BBC. So join us now as we sort out the Beatles movies. Welcome to episode 56 and welcome to We'll Make You Feel Paul Wright Abbott. Oh, that's, yeah, that's my catchphrase. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. We, I might have done that one before, but it's it's apt, so I'm doing it again. Yeah. Okay, I'll take I'll take that. Good afternoon, everyone. I've chosen afternoon today. Good, it's a good, good night to choose If you're not listening at afternoon, please reschedule. Good. Uh, don't forget, you can follow us at big underscore sort on Twitter and Instagram, or email us at, at bigbeetlesortout at gmail.com. There's a lot of ats in that sentence. It tricks me up. Um, please do like and share our posts and tell everyone. Great. Everyone. Everyone. Everyone you know. Paul, how are you, and how are the world of Paul things? Uh, they're all right, thank you very much, Gary. I'm okay. I'm very much looking forward to our next few little podcasts as we mm. move away from the purely audio into the visual. Yes. And, yeah, because this is a big part of, you know, my Beatles upbringing, certainly mm. the first two of these things that we'll be talking about in the next couple of episodes. And, uh, yeah, so it's all good, yes. And this episode, when's this coming out? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, if anyone's interested, our album, Good Grief's album, comes out on the 18th of March. Ooh, so... The 18th of March, that is the album launch day. Yes, to get your pre-orders in if you haven't already. Yes, go to Bandcamp, look up Good Grief Liverpool and listen to some rock music. Rock music. I'm doing a DJ voice there, accidentally. Hmm. Rock music. No, I'm not. It's not very good. Shut up. Bye. Okay, well, <laughs> that's all good. Um, I don't think I have anything specific. I think my, my next song is out that week, this week, the week that you're listening to this. So maybe, but I'm not sure what day. But um, either way, I always link the latest one in the episode description. So just click through that and have a listen and whatnot. Um, great. Well, before we kind of introduce this next run of episodes and talk about that in general, let's do our usual on this Beatles day to get us started. Um you know, so that should be the 7th of March, Paul? Yes. So on the 7th of March, 1963, I've chosen a nice quick Ooh. little one here because okay. I feel like we might have quite a bit to talk about mm. in this episode. But it is the Mersey Beat Showcase, which takes place in the Elizabeth Ballroom in Nottingham. Okay. So this is the first time the Beatles play in Nottingham. And what it is, it's, it's kind of inspired by the sort of... Uh, touring package tours that American artists were on. Brian Epstein arranges essentially for a big group of Liverpool artists mm. to go on a package tour. and he, So he does this date. This is the first of these ones. And I think he does about four more right. over the next few months, essentially uh, calling it the Mersey Beach Showcase. Although I've got a copy of the ticket here and it is listed on the ticket as rock and roll concert slash dance starring the Beatles plus all-star show. <laughs> very literal so, ticket there <laughs> yeah some some pedantic ticket designer saying well yeah it's very it's yeah it's not um not exactly the most exciting ticket you've yeah. ever seen but it does say the word buffet on it so <laughs> right. you know, that's got promise yeah, that's, that's already piqued my interest <laughs> yeah but it was jerry and the pacemakers the big three billy j kramer and the dakotas and the beatles and also bob wooler the dj from the cavern is brought down to compare the show mm. and yeah like i say first First gig for the Beatles in Nottingham, not far from the place I've played in Nottingham. You know, mm. with my band, 
Mm. Um, not far from there, but not the same place because I don't think it exists anymore. That's just a fact. And uh, yeah, simple as that. But um, I couldn't quite work out exactly how well attended this show was. Mm. You know, they're already, you know, a number one group at this point. They've got Please Please Me at number one. And uh, But Brian sort of hedging his bets brings down 80 fans from Liverpool on coaches. Okay. So he's, the people of yeah. Nottingham were happy without that. <laughs> yes, yes. But I don't believe it was a sellout, but either way, Brian didn't like to leave things up to chance. Yeah. So he brings 80 fans across. And do you know what? Going from Liverpool to Nottingham is a pain today. Yeah. It's a long, long drive. and It's very boring. Yeah. The A50. And you it, sure it is. Oh, it must have been really tedious in winter, uh, you know, late winter in uh, 1963. Mm. But anyway, there you go. That's it. Beatles Day, 7th of March, 1963. Elizabeth Ballroom, Nottingham, Mersey Beach Showcase. Done. Great yeah. stuff. Well then, let's move on to what we're moving on to, which is the movies, aptly. So, yeah, we are going to start over the... Well, we're going to do, over the next five weeks, five films. Yes. In chronological order. And today we will be starting with the first of those films, which is... Good place. Good place to start. Yeah, good place, which is A Hard Day's Night, as we know. Um, so I think if you tell us a bit about Hard Day's Night in general, Paul, then I'll say about how I'm going to go about scoring this and the following films over the next few weeks. And um, and then we'll get stuck into it and see what happens, because it's obviously, like you say, it's a completely different world we you know we're normally dealing with a collection of three minute songs if that and we're dealing with a you know an hour and a half's worth of audio visual bonanza here it could Ooh. be sensory overload so let's see how we get on okay. so you know excuse us dear listener for you know however this goes <laughs> yeah we might get a bit gushing to be honest well, we'll see we'll see so paul give us a give us a general overview of the the movie and how it came to be and that kind of stuff get us going how it came to be brought about Mm. okay so rock films or pop music films Mm. are not a new phenomenon in 1964 when this comes out by any means elvis had been making them for ages and there's a phenomenon called the jukebox musical where which were these films were just sort of quite loose plots Mm. where you'd have a whole bunch of different artists to turn up in them yeah and they'd play a song in a club somewhere or whatever and yeah there's loads of them and some are quite entertaining little, you know, novelties from the time that they've produced. Others are just rubbish. Yeah. And that carries on after this film comes out. But what uh, Hard Day's Night does quite significantly Mm. is sort of focuses rock music on film. Okay. And that was never their intention when they were making it. That's the important thing to remember. But like so much of the Beatles story, enough things came together well. Mm-hmm to make a difference. So, you know, you, you get this coming out in 1964. Of course, what happens later in 1964, Brian, having done this with the the boys, decides to do a film with Jerry and the Pacemakers called Ferry Cross the Mersey. Right. Which, you know, the fact that we're not sat here doing a Jerry and the Pacemakers podcast and talking about this film, that film right. tells you all you need to know about I, it, really. I, I can't say I'm so familiar with it. No, I'm not familiar with it at all. I would love to see it because it was all filmed in Liverpool, unlike this film. Ah, yes. Interestingly. But then you get people like Dave Clark Five doing Catch As If You Can, which I think is one of the most tedious films that's ever been made. Okay, never. Not um, some, some folks will uh, 
will probably love that. Mm. But it, I find it quite depressing. But then you group, groups like Herman's Hermits do a couple of films, Hold On and Mrs. Brown, You Got a Lovely Daughter. And of course, another person that's involved in this sort of world is Cliff Richard, because in this country, yeah. The Young Ones comes out in 1961, Summer Holiday in 1963. A film called Wonderful Life comes out in 64, about the same time as Hard Day's Night. Uh, Finders Keepers in 1966. You get bands like the Spencer Davis Group doing The Ghost Goes Gear in 1966, <laughs> which is like a rock group staying in a haunted mansion type film. <laughs> Just, you know, so these, this whole world is completely bonkers. But like I say, yeah. what this film does is really solidify all, all the best bits of, of what you could do and point mm. to the way forward. Essentially, United Artists wanted the rights to a soundtrack album. Right. So the Beatles' music in America comes out on Capitol, Capitol Records, mm-hmm. eventually when they finally, EMI finally convinced them to put it out. You know, when they couldn't ignore it anymore. But United Artists, a different company, are like, hmm, well, we could do with a slice of that pie. Yeah. So if we get them to make a film, then we will get the rights to the soundtrack album. Right. And it doesn't really matter how much we spend on the film, because it won't be a lot, because we're more or less guaranteed to get the money back off the soundtrack album. Right, okay. So it's it's rather a cynical sort of starting point. Yeah, just a vehicle for the album. Yeah. Yeah. So this is why the, you know, the American edition of Hard Day's Night album is on United Artists, not Capital. And, but the funny thing is, the guy who sort of signs them to this three-picture deal yeah. then basically lets, puts, in, 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 puts all this stuff in motion and he lets Walter Shenson produce it, who's sort of American but based in England. Mm. He pings in, brings in Richard Lester. They get Alan Owen on board as a scriptwriter. Right. And those three men... Yeah. are sort of just left to it and they're all the right people oh. because the Beatles wouldn't have made a film with anyone they didn't want to even in that early stage of their career Yeah, so everyone had to be like they, they had to sort of agree and the Beatles had to say yes and they did with these people that they met Alan Owen was a Liverpool TV playwright mm-hmm. he'd done a thing called No Trams to Lime Street and he was sort of known for writing in the Scouse vernacular right and then you've got Richard Lester, who directed all, all the TV stuff that the goons sort of did. Right. Well, not all of it, but quite a big part of it, like uh, some of the sort of goon sitcom type sketch shows. Yeah. And he did this thing called the Running, Jumping and Standing Still film, which you hear mentioned quite a lot in 1959, which is a very, very silly sort of arty comedy film. Okay. Which the Beatles all loved. So it just all comes together nicely. And... They basically get told, you haven't got much money, don't spend more than £200,000. They Mm. come in under budget, I think, on that. And the film instantly makes that money back easily. Yeah. And I think, technically, in terms of profit to cost, it's probably one of the most successful films of all time, I think. Um, Certainly of that period anyway, and I think for a long time. It's brilliant. I mean, it's... Well, we'll get into the brilliance-ness of it, Paul. Yeah, yeah. For sure. But um, So that's really interesting that it was made on a shoestring pretty much to secure rights to a soundtrack album. So it's a very yep. long way around being able to get a slice of album pie for United Artists. So why not do a film? And I, I suppose they must have also had an eye on the fact that, well, the film might be quite popular, so they're quite popular, you know. They must have... Yeah. Must have, you know, and also, the, you know, the... That. The Beatles had been approached several times to star in things, yeah. but they were all things that they didn't want to be in. 
right. you know, naff films that are either like sort of Cliff Richard type musicals or like yeah. these turn up in the background of type thing. It could and have so gone turned so down many ways. It could have gone so many ways with them in that period, couldn't it? If they'd not yeah. been the who they were and stuck to their guns. So yeah, um, we can just be thankful that it was this, and we'll find yeah. out why as we break it down into certain categories. <laughs> that I'm Come about on, to get get the numbers involved. Let's get Gary. the numbers involved. So we got some of some kind of framework for our for our gushing. So the categories I will be scoring this film and the other four films um, against are plot, the storyline, the pacing, the general premise and idea of the whole thing. I think that's a pretty straightforward um, category. Or you'd think it was, but I'm sure we'll get already... I'm sure we can make it more complicated than it needs to be. barriers with that quite quickly. The other category will be uh, production, um, which I'm going to take as being the cinematography, the locations, the costumes, the effects, the kind of um, visual direction as well. You know, the production. We're going to have the performances. So that's going to be, loosely you could think of this as the kind of people direction as well as the individuals themselves. The Beatles and non-Beatles alike, the overall impression of the performers in the film. And we'll look at some of their performances to, to kind of talk about that. Then we're going to have the script which all that's dialogue, if you like, depending on whether the words spoken are scripted or not, because we'll be covering mm. a mixture. Um, but basically, what the words spoken. There we go. Um, and finally, we won't be kind of talking about it, but what I will do is I'll look back at my scores from series one for the songs that appear in the soundtrack and get an overall average of those songs. So it should t- tally or tie in with my original scoring. And that will be added into the mix as well to give us one big overall score. Um, and the only caveat on that is it it needs to be a fully fledged or large snippet of a song, not just a little glimmer of a song yeah. that appears in like maybe the score. It needs to be a, a full soundtrack song yeah. rather than yeah. just a generally you know, a performance. Music. I'll be I'll be you know I'm not going to be too rigid with that when it comes to like they only play half the song or something but it needs to be more than just like a few seconds on the in the background or something so that's the categories that should give us the uh the way we're gonna go talking about this paul first though it's been a hard day's night and i've been working like a dog it's been a hard day i hope that's whetted your appetite paul well, it makes me want to attend one of the premieres, such as the UK premiere on the 6th of July, 1964. Mm-hmm. That was at London Pavilion Cinema. That's the one where Princess Margaret and Lord Snowden were there. Right. Then on the 10th of July, they have the Northern premiere in Liverpool. Ooh. So that's the day when they have this big town hall reception with the uh, Bessie Braddock, the Labour MP for that area of Liverpool. Yeah. They get the key to the city and all that uh, doodah okay. stuff. And then they go to the Odeon on London Road to watch the film. Um, the Odeon on London Road is not there anymore. It was when I first came to Liverpool. Right. It's it's long gone now, mm. though. And uh, yeah, so they, that, that's when they have the premiere there and get all that you know proper waving from the balcony stuff that you can see on yeah. on uh, newsreels and things. And they have a US premiere on the eleventh of August sixty four. But the Beatles aren't there for that. Right. They are in the studio recording "Babies in Black." Right. And they're having been in Scarborough's Futurist Theatre a couple of nights before. Oh. Which is a, a place where we, you know, where we grew up. Yeah. We didn't grow up in a theatre. No. But in Scarborough. Near Scarborough. Scarborough. Near Scarborough. Yeah. 
mm. and I have been to the Future Estate. That's also not there anymore. Oh, someone's it's a following. Trail you of devastation of Beatles sites. Or it's, you, or it's you. you. Oh yeah. Everywhere you go, every theatre you visit. That's my cover up. <laughs> okay, so let's get on with our first category, which is plot. I said already that you know it's a pretty straightforward category, but it might throw us up some hurdles. And I think mm. pretty quickly we are put in a bit of an interesting position here because um, in some ways this could be a film that's said to not really have one, which is quite yeah. brave for a film to start the kind of movie career of the Beatles to start with a ostensibly plotless movie. And what we get instead is slice of life, would you say? Yeah, it's, it's about 36 hours worth of the Beatles world. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah, which is a valid storytelling mechanism and kind of, you know, it, I'm sure most people know what slice of life means, but it's designed more to immerse us in some in the world of the characters and the minutiae maybe of the of that world rather than it is to steer us through a transformation as most yeah. plots would do where you come out differently to how you start. Slice of life, you you're going to end pretty much the same as you started, but you're going to have you're going to have almost um, what's the word? Spied, kind of. Yeah, pe- you put them on, You just put yeah. someone's life under a you're microscope, under a microscope. You, yeah. essentially. It's, it's it's kind of documentary style, which is why you keep getting the phrase "cinema verite" okay. used to describe Hard Day's Night, which is essentially a documentary making format. Yeah, that this is done shot in, except for the fact that this is a fictionalized tale. Yeah, but and it's it- based so much on what's happened in the Beatles' life and the way their days re- went. Yeah. That it, it feels like a documentary. And and the strange thing, yeah, with with that is that, which is a good thing, is that's very much the setup of it. But they also introduce farce and all sorts of slapstick and things to the Surrealism. plot. Surrealism to the plot, which sits really... Well, against that backdrop, it's, it's, it's a very good juxtaposition because you know it's, you haven't got. A, if it was already a big flamboyant, ridiculous film, then it wouldn't be so funny when all of a sudden the Beatles appear outside of the train that they were, they were in a second ago. That kind of thing. But I think anyone should come into this now. I think a good exercise is to watch the um, Beatles' first U.S. Video, visit film mm. the Maisel's brothers documentary yeah which obviously hadn't been seen by audiences when this came out in 64 but if you watch that first now which was obviously literally a month or two before they start filming this and you're seeing the beatles on trains and on in the various yeah. venues and things like that and, and in, in the, the back hotel of room with and people, in cars yeah. and all that stuff and then watch this you'd be you could be forgiven for thinking one leads into the other you know yeah <laughs> Except that for the fact that this is clearly a film, not just a yeah. p- pure documentary, but so much of this features handheld footage mm. and that sort of stuff. And uh, well, it has to have all the tight angles and things. That yes, the, the small spaces, location. Before I carry on with my general plots, you know, chattery. <laughs> um, can you give us? Do you think you can attempt Paul a a, a whistle stop kind of synopsis? Yes. Go on then. Okay, I will. The Beatles are getting a train down to London from Liverpool. It's supposed to be Liverpool, you don't really tell. And for some reason, they've got with them a little old man who turns out to be Paul's grandfather, the Mm. other one. (laughs) 
they're going down to film a TV special, and all they have to do is get down there, turn up on time for rehearsals, film their film their special, and then get on to whatever's next. Yeah. And that is essentially what they do, except for we have the irritant of the grandfather. I don't mean irritant as in he is necessarily irritating, but he is the person who irritates the plot into action. Yeah. So he keeps disappearing or doing something that he shouldn't do. Yeah. So all the while, the road manager and his assistant are trying to wrangle, you know, the Beatles, which is like herding cats. Yeah. But everything is... The, the chaos comes from them trying to have to deal with Paul's grandfather, John McCartney. Yeah. And But other than that, that's it. Yes. I mean, that's yes. it. That's why there is no... There's no. There's nothing to be solved other yeah. than the general... There's no massive crisis. Yeah, the biggest crisis is the... Will they, they will they be there on time for the final performance? Yes, yeah. because they keep uh, you know. That's that's the main when it gets to that part of the film. That's the ticking clock. Yeah, which only kind of gets introduced. I mean, although they're always heading there, the fear that they might not make the final rehearsal is only really introduced shortly before that is resolved. Anyway. Oh, don't worry, the good lads they'll be back. Yes, we'll be only twenty minutes to the final run through. Up until that point, it's just the next thing on the itinerary, isn't it? You know, it's just what they're doing. So yeah, it is, it is a, that's, that's it. You, you did it. <laughs> Thanks. Um, the, the only other thing I'd, I'd add to that is apart from the, um, granddad, they, the Beatles themselves, like you say, herding cats tend to wander off into different directions and bump into different people along the way yes. and have experiences with a quirky cast of characters and they interact, who they interact with, quite often uh, taking up a rebellious position against them, but we'll get on to that, I think, with some more of the script and, and, and performances. Yeah. So, yeah, so we get we get this slice of life, but it's not realism, which slice of life is often kitchen sink kind of, you know, drama, realism, gritty. It's not that. It's slice of life. It's documentary. It's a slice of the Beatles' life, so it's obviously going to be different. But it's... Grounded it's in, comedy, but it's comedy. It's, it's a comedy, and it's it it is set pieces, and it is scripted, and it, it it is isn't just you know, but it gives you the impression that you're just following them around and watching them being spontaneous, but obviously you you're not. Um, and it it's an essence of the Beatles that we know from and press conferences and and footage like the footage you were talking about, the Maisel brothers, and the things we. It's so easy to see why the the writers put the words that they do in their mouth and mouths and make this film because you've got this cheeky, funny, a bit cool and a bit aloof when they want to be that they spin out into being these on-screen personas. They, you know, cause they are very heavily based on them anyway, you know, obviously they are exaggerated, but they're, they're, yeah. they're broadly based on their, well, this is it. I mean, Alan Owen spent time with them. He saw yeah. this happening, you know, and he was a scouter himself. So he knew, the bands. Yeah, well, he knew the behaviour. He knew the patterns. He knew it wasn't them putting it on. Yeah. You know, he knew how people act with each other. And he could pick up on that and, and write this stuff down in a way that someone else might have made really, really naff. Yeah. If so, if they'd have done it. So delicately balanced, I think. Yeah. I think another one of those ones where it really could have gone, if they'd got the wrong people in. They're yeah, a bit more totally. compliant. It just wouldn't have worked. And compliance plays a big part in this, which, I, you know, we'll get on to. 
But um, yeah, I mean, because I think if if you had have followed them, if he had have gone right, let's just take what actually happened to you this day and then we'll put it in film. The thing is, all for all their banter and stuff in front of the cameras, I imagine a lot of sitting around on trains, travelling to gigs and waiting in or perform, you know, appearances and sitting in green rooms was quite funny for them, but perhaps wouldn't have been really that funny if you tried to watch an hour and a half of it just end to end. They have to be, they have to introduce these reasons for them to bounce off other people. And I think that's what they've, what where the plot goes, the mischievous granddad, and then some bits like Ringo's Adventure, um, the trend setter, the the nightclub escape. Um, yeah, it's, it, that's all just these little adornments to a backbone of a, of a, of a kind of day in the life plot. So what does it all amount to plot wise? Uh, I think what we'll end up talking about for me, and it's, it came really clear watching it and doing these notes, even though I've seen this many, many times, is this is a film about the Beatles challenging authority that they see as unearned or just for the sake of resonating with the kids. But they, 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 they rub up against people, don't they, Paul? Nearly every, every character they meet nearly is someone who doesn't seem to know who they are, who feels entitled to... Yeah. And they, they they kind of stick it to them a little bit in a polite and funny way, almost, or not so polite, but at least in a funny and charming way. But posh men on trains, groundskeepers, studio producers, even their own road managers. It, there's a very strong theme of young, youthful, vibrancy, energy, but kind of like... Um, non-compliance or rebellion, but in a very package, not package, but very, this definitely comes out in the people they meet, you know, um, that's the, so that's part of the, what the, I'm sure it's, whether it's based on, on, on his time with them or it's, it's by design, it's saying we're with you kids, you know, we're with you. But um, there's more, I've got more to say on this later on with some of the, the, the different things in the script. But do you see what I mean with this overall? I do see what you mean, yeah. I think at the very basic level, you could just describe them as cheeky. And I mean that in, yeah. you know, like they're always willing to say things to people rather than just nod and be polite. Although they do play up a little bit McCartney being the sort of nicer guy. Yeah. But not massively. He gets his own moments, like when he talks to uh, the, the director and puts on a very, very poor Welsh accent yeah. just for the sake of it. Yeah. You know, that's taking the mickey a little bit and that sort of thing. Oh, we were looking for Ringo, but we realised he must have come back here. Well, do you realise that we're on the air live in front of an audience in 45 minutes and you're one shot? Uh, so, yeah, it is It is there. They're not, it's, they're not kicking doors down and saying tear down the system at all they're just sort of going well if we're in if we have to deal with these people then at least we'll deal with them sort of on our own terms and luckily their terms in this situation is that they are they get through with being funny they're cool funny and and able this is what they're just the coolest though aren't they i mean that's the thing yeah even when they're being silly they're just so cool and i think the thing with this uh, and i think it's goes through every single one of these categories really Mm. helps this to come across is that they're just the best gang in the world yeah and you just want to be in that gang yeah more than anything and i watched it again obviously before we're doing this and it's like still i'm like just that's Mm. that's it that's and if you're in a band that's all you ever want you want that weird self-enclosed dynamic yeah that you've got their little world, the little protection that you have with each other in the trust you have in each other. Mm. 
And, oh, oh yeah, I've started. I've started gushing. Paul, <laughs> put, put, a, put a plug I'll in spurt. it. Um, yeah, I, I just think with the, um, yeah, they're not breaking down doors, but there's been, there's a purposeful um, direction in, in the script slash plot, which is why I haven't talked about it completely in here, of putting them in situations with people who deserve a bit of cheekiness, you know. They, they, they're rude, like a rude man demanding to have the window closed, even though he's outnumbered, and they're quite rightly, you know, oh, well, there's, there's more of us, and, you know, or... That is apparently based on a real-life thing that happened to them. Oh, okay, well, maybe this has happened to them a lot, you know, or, as I say, the groundskeeper, who's, like, basically, literally the kind of get-off-the-grass type of man, and there's... Sorry we hurt your field. Yeah, <laughs> studio producers who who don't seem to care anything about their status or who they are, don't seem to almost know, they're just, like... They're just they're just a trouble though they're a bother to them and they're not really being polite to them at all you know they're and hiding behind their smoke screens of bourgeois cliches <laughs> exactly so um yeah so anyway I think that's an interesting thing to emerge out of a plot that is pretty linear but with with just side shoots of things so yeah it's it's it, it's not you know um I'm gonna give it 70 for plot because I think it's it's an interesting way of going about it, and obviously, compared to a film with lots of different twists and turns, it wouldn't. It's not that, but it's it it does a good job of being a great way to to introduce them to the big screen. Yeah, Whilst, and I think it's a good yeah. thing for the money they had to spend on it as well, which was not much. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah. Because apparently, the you know when Alan Owen was first commissioned to do this, he was mm. sort of thinking, I wanted. I felt I've got a quote here. Mm. featured in Rave magazine at the time. Mm. I wanted the boys living up in fancy costumes, airy-fairy themes. Yes, I had very firm ideas about the story, but I had to change them when I'd spent time with the Beatles. Their life is far more fantastic than anything I could dream up. Right, okay. So he spent time with them and it made this real realistic type thing. Yeah. As opposed to what they would have tried to do, which is make a f- sort of fantastical thing on not much money and it would have been dreadful. Yeah, again... Thank goodness for the way things fell. So we'll move on from plot for now, although it will keep on rearing its head, I'm sure, with a score of 70. Production, we'll move on to. So cinematography, production, that kind of thing. Uh, we've more got a series of little snippets of things to talk about here, which, I, which I've uh, pulled out from, from watching it. Um, it's interesting now, you've already set the scene with a bit about the budget. Um, I, I didn't really do that research i've tried to watch like i always do i try to go in as a impartial um observer um so yeah they do a a good job on the budget they've got i mean the first things first i'm not going to go through everything in order but some of the bigger sequences are things like the crowd chase sequences which is an interesting in a production point of view because You've got to think that at this time, the Beatles would have attracted screaming crowds, I guess, anyway. Yes, yes definitely. And, but yet, here what they had to do <laughs> was manufacture and control a screaming mob to yes. in order to film it, you know, in a set yeah. way with the right rig and everything set up. I think the thing was they were they were getting, you know, some of it is... It's real footage of people screaming at them. Yeah. Not not much, though, because, no. like you say, the stuff needs to be controlled. Yeah. And you couldn't have your stars being torn apart on day one of filming. No. Uh, but, like, every time the train pulled up anywhere, even though they were trying to keep it secret, there was crowds. Right. That sort of thing. So, you know, so there was lots of people around at t- different times. But what I was going to say is 
they get these people in from stage school or whatever for the final, like the concert at the end or yeah. whatever. And they're there as actors. But of course they are all as well yeah. Beatles fans. Yeah. So yes, there wasn't much of a leap no. between, you know, the, the boundary between screaming fan and person hired to be screaming fan. Yeah, well, this was, is the thing that it's struck a very grey area. It must have been a very strange situation because there must have been points when they were doing interiors of things like the, the, the train stations and stuff where they were they had things cordoned off, you know. They would have had the run of the place so they could actually get filmed what they needed to get filmed and things. And there must have there must have been situations where they were keeping the screaming fans away from the fake screaming fans who were like say probably real screaming fans too because otherwise it would have just been chaos. Yeah, no. I think you can see on some of that um, behind-the-scenes footage that crops up in things. Like like at the train station, there's a group of fans sort of being given this sort of call for action by Dick Lester. Yeah. But they're, they're setting off from being stood next to many more fans who are behind barriers being kept out of the way yeah. of the filming. So it's strange. It must have been a strange thing. to be. So it was an interesting and good production. I also noticed that because of that control, even though they could genuinely have mustered up hundreds if they wanted to, there are quite a few good shots where, yes, it looks like there's tons and tons of people, but pull out and it'd be a bit like the top of the Pops cameras when they, you know, they used to pull away from the crowd. And you'd see that it was like the 10 people you'd in the studio. you see the edge of the crowd. Yeah, the, the, the dozen people who were actually there had been herded into shot. And um, because obviously you don't, if, if you can avoid hundreds of people, especially on a budget, you would do um, for, for logistics as well. So they, yeah, but then there are some scenes where it's quite evidently a much bigger crowd, but there's somewhere it's about 12 people getting filmed from very tight angles, which is good. Very brave to shoot so much. Um, well, I think it's probably worth mentioning, like just a rundown of the key players here, because we mentioned okay. obviously the pr- the producer Walter yes, Jensen, yeah. um, who has the sort of that money control role, and then we obviously talk about Richard Lester, Dick Lester as the director, uh, but we should also mention the cinematographer, which is Gilbert Taylor, right, who made lots of very very good films as a cinematographer, and the cinematography in this is brilliant. Yeah, you know the decision for the types of shots they do and, and yeah. the boldness with which they do it. I mean, Gilbert Taylor, he was cinematographer on a film called Seven Days to Noon. That comes up on Talking Pictures TV quite a lot. That's really worth a watch. Mm. The Dam Busters, Dr. Strangelove, oh, oh. works on things like um, Repulsion and Cul-de-Sac with Roman Polanski, two very 60s films. Yeah. Uh, the Omen, Star Wars. You know, this is a very, very good yeah, cinematographer. But yeah. like some of the decisions between him and Dick Lester, like the way they will film with things in shadow mm. so you lose detail and you like like the train window is the only light in a sequence yeah or you have the section where the camera goes around paul mccartney and they shoot directly into the light mm. which you shouldn't do yeah you know technically speaking but they leave that in because it's a brilliant look to the thing yeah and then you combine that with john jimpson who is the editor mm-hmm. he, he edited zulu uh-huh. big film where Eagles Dare, Frenzy, that's one of the late Hitchcock films. Uh, a Fish Called Wanda, yeah, right. Splitting Airs, Circle of Friends, so he's working quite a long time. Mm. Very good editing as well, so you've got good good direction, good cinematography, good editing. You know, all these people make f- for this fantastic production. Yes, they certainly do. And and they they obviously don't haven't geared the script to the production. They've they've geared the production to the script because as the script presumably calls for the story that they all come up with is that there's going to be a huge amount of it sat on a train, which from its, I can imagine was a challenge. 
Um, yeah, but because... less of a challenge than probably the reality would have for them probably would have been traveling by, um, v- well, not van at this point, probably in cars at this point, cars and yeah. a van, which you couldn't film in. Exactly, they wouldn't be very good. So. Yeah, yeah, I don't have thought of that actually. Yeah, they, they wouldn't have gone van by train, would they? But yeah, you because... couldn't have them interacting with a whole group of different people, which you can do on a train. Yeah, but just the kind of the closeness of the, I mean, it's great because you get that real f- feel for those kind of trains. Um, what are those yeah, it's still com- quite claustrophobic, isn't it? You know. Yeah, well, they, 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 you've got those that narrow corridor between the the, the different compartments, and uh, and not very much room for manoeuvre for equipment. And plus, they're on a moving train. There's no there's no green <laughs> yeah, screen. Yeah. There's no there's not no, someone. No, not, they're not faking it. There's not a painting of um of a English countryside outside on rollers. It's they're having to film that presumably between stops. Uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So did, did they just go backwards and forwards, or do we know, or did they just? It have... was a few a few days filming on the train and they set off from uh, Marleybone Station and and yeah, go up and down the line. I think out out to Devon possibly or something like that. Yeah, and 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 back and and things like that. So. Must have been a funniest day's work to be on. I mean, traveling is you know some people are better than others, but just to kind of because just to kind of turn around and come back again and just keep on filming yeah but um so that, that's very good um practical thing um and we i mentioned it before but that moment where when they're in the um cabin with the the grumpy fellow who wants the window open and they they, they, they leave the cabin and they start saying can we have our ball back mister and stuff and then they're suddenly outside the train <laughs> Yeah, well, that's an interesting decision by Dick Lester. He, and I think what he was saying in some of the documentaries about this is, you know, he wanted to give the audience a clue very early on that this isn't just what you think you're seeing. Yeah. You know, it's something more. So when you get the sequences where suddenly they're like the I should have known better sequence where suddenly they're playing guitars. Yeah. Um, you're sort of giving the audience the warning with this stuff where they're outside the train suddenly. Sort mm. of saying strange things might happen. Yeah, but that's kind of the excitement of the Beatles. Things are seem so super amazing. It's and it, yeah. beyond reality, even though it's quite, but it's quite know, mundane down to earth. In other ways, yeah. commuting to <laughs> to a, a job. But it's funny because that's one of the only one of only a few real slapstick or surreal moments. There's not that many in there, so they, they it's very yeah. very reserved with the choice of of how many of those kind of things they show. And he could have gone mad because Dick Lester was perfectly capable of it. You know, someone who's worked as as much as he did with Spike Milligan and Peter Sellers and people like yeah. that. You know, he knew how to do this stuff. Exactly. So, yeah. So some other bits that um, stood out for me. Um, the director and the editor. Um, great combination with in the way they work with um, the crowds, scenes of busy busy spaces. So there's the, we've got the two examples that, that stood out for me was the in the club and at the press conference scenes. So we've got, you know, these these interiors, lots of people, lots of dancing, four characters to kind of keep on catching up with and checking in with as we mm. cut through that. So obviously there's a very fluid, fluent motion through these scenes, which is really well done. And in highlight especially, I thought that it's a great example of it in the press conference before they um, duck out of it the one where they're doing yeah. all their sound bites is we follow a woman with a, you know, a serving lady with a tray who never stops long enough for any of the Beatles to get a snack off of it. Yeah. But she's our guide through this crowded space. The camera follows her, keeps landing on them, keeps, you know, and that's just little, little touches like that 
kind of navigate us through or, or little stories within the scene like the man who's dancing with Ringo and and stuff and the fact you know in the club and things yeah it's um it, they, they're good at working with they're good it's a very very good um setup Yes, there's a, there's a few good bits where there's like the, the background actors are, are directed really well as well, like in mm. this in the uh, <laughs> in the sequence where grandfather is is you know winding Ringo up. Yeah, in, saying, the, in the cafe, you know, you know, stuck in a blooming book. Yeah, that's sequence. a great scene as well. Yeah. Would you look at them sitting there with his hooter scraping away at that book? Well, what's the matter with that? Have you no natural resources of your own? Have they even robbed you that? And you've already had a very obvious front of camera joke where the guy's putting fake blood on, but he's using his yeah. tomato ketchup. Yeah. But in the background of the scene where uh, Wilfred Bramble's talking to Ringo, there's like a guy reading a, a newspaper at one table mm. and a guy on another table, completely separate from him, just leans over and just takes the paper out of this guy's hand and just carries, starts reading it himself. <laughs> it's just a stupid joke in the background that you blink and you miss it. And also, whilst, whilst Wilfred Bramble's doing his monologue... And I'm he's looking, looking for sugar. He's looking for sugar for his tea, which he gets taken out off of his table by the waitress. Almost while he's his, looking, for whilst he's looking, whilst he's looking for sugar and doing his monologue, and then he sits down and he goes to put it in, and the cup's not there, and he just kind of shrugs, and that's the end of it. But if you've not been paying attention, that's just something that's happening as well because you're not looking at the waitress coming in and taking the cup of tea away. Yeah, you're looking at um, at him doing his his speech. So. Yeah, it's just, it's a funny little sleight of hand, sort of yeah. directorially speaking. And they, 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 again, another thing from a direction point of view, and I spoke about earlier, it, it's obviously, I, I, I'm, I'd be surprised if this isn't documented somewhere, they must have made the decision that, okay, we're in the world of the Beatles, and the Beatles know they're the Beatles, and the Screaming Girls know they're the Beatles, and their immediate characters, like, you know, the, the road managers and the granddad know they're the Beatles. But no one else knows or cares, basically. Yeah. Otherwise, the film won't work. We can't have everywhere yeah, well, that... It, yeah. Yeah. No, well, there's one word that is not spoken in this film, and that word is Beatles. Yeah. Oh, is it not? No. <laughs> because it's obviously there because it's on the drum skin, yeah. and you have the big sign at the concert at the end, and the helicopter has the Beatles word on it. Yeah. But at no point does anyone say, "Oh, you are the Beatles." No. Because it would pop Famous the bubble of pop the group. Yeah. yeah. And and if you if you you can look at it as being like you know they're playing versions of themselves. You know they're John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Yeah, uh, their surnames do get mentioned at points, except for Paul McCartney. But mm. then we've got John McCartney in it, yeah. and yeah, but they could just be John, Paul, George, Ringo, a a band. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it it's it's once removed. It has to be because it wouldn't. They wouldn't. But be it enhances any, the reality, and the reality enhances the once removedness. It's so clever. It allows them to be the characters that they probably wouldn't if this was a real fly in the wall documentary. You know, which which although there may have been store, there will have been things that happened. You know, most of the time they would be dealing with people going it's the, it's the Beatles, like you know, in some capacity or other. They, they, most of the time, and they wouldn't be able to just nip off and go down the pub and things. And so, yeah, and and the police would go, "Oh, you're the Beatles. <laughs> We're here." You know, not yeah. yeah it's 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 a good this willful kind of ignorance of the kind of um, the the players in the, in that. It's kind of bridges plot but i guess it's it's the direction as well um because of all the people in it you've been told don't act like you know who they are otherwise that doesn't work um 
Yeah, we've got some great stuff. Uh, I like the use of the TV studio towards the end of the last third of the film. Gives us a great way to introduce multiple shots without it being a pop video because you can literally film the monitors in the studio that they're appearing in, filming them from the different angles. So they get to use the film as a pop video. But again, once removed, they don't, you know, rather than the film's eye falling on them from those angles, although it does later on, it does also get to kind of use the TV studio setting to its advantage for that and still keep a kind of realism going on. Um, the only thing about the direction, the only bit with pacing and stuff about the direction that I think is we do get a bit clumped up in the last third of songs when, when they're in the, they're doing the practicing before the, um, before the, before the concert. And there's a one that comes a bit. Uh, what is it? I think "Happy to Dance with You" comes a bit too soon off the heels of. And yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. There is that little that little block where it's like they're there. Go go and put them in the dressing room, and, and they're back and again. Bring it back and more or less one. straight away playing the next rehearsal. Yeah, which feels a bit thing. like we've got to get all the numbers in. Uh, And I don't know whether some of that might be... There wasn't much, as far as I can tell, that was excised from the film completely. Right. But definitely, uh, not from that section, certainly, there is a sequence with... There was more material with, I believe, the chauffeur, Mm -hmm. um, who who was cut out. So they had a chauffeur who they talked to. Right. And that was all cut out. Mm -hmm. And there's a... Paul's big solo scene was cut out. Oh, what was that? That's when he goes, he's looking for Ringo and he goes into a room where an actress is rehearsing. Right. And it's just him and this actress played by Isla Blair. And yeah, that was cut out in the end. Um, Paul. Was it because he wasn't very good at acting? (laughs) Well, we'll come on to that. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Which actor's best, which of them's best actor. But uh, yeah, I think... I don't know whether that might have affected pacing here or there. Yeah. Possibly. Um, none of that stuff exists either, rather annoying. It's just no. why you can't see it. You don't get it as deleted scenes. All that stuff doesn't exist. Some short-sighted people in the 60s. I know, I know. But, uh, yeah, I I agree with you Yeah, about that. It does it seem just, funny how quickly up, those little yeah. rehearsal numbers come around, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, and yeah. then onwards. But And um, weirdly, just after as a well... Minor, very minor criticism. Yeah, very minor criticism. We've got to find something though. It, it it comes strangely as well with I'm Happy Just to Dance With You. It kind of, they, they invade a studio which has got Lionel Blair and some dancing girls. Yes. And then they just do a similar setup to what they'd just done before, which is them just kind of casually playing their instruments sitting around on their amps and things. And you think, well, they've just done that. And there was, I, you know, maybe they could have used the studio a bit or had them do I wondered why show the dancing girls just to take them off and then just have them I thought maybe it just seemed a bit of a repeat again that was the only bit I can never quite work out what the TV special is supposed to be in the end really because <laughs> obviously the Lionel Blair dancing thing because they're dancing to a version of Happy Just to Dance with yeah. You um, and it's got the Beatles pictures of actual Beatles up on the wall mm. and stuff like that but there's also the sequence where there's an opera being filmed as part of this so is that part of the yeah. the pre-film? Or are they for just this? in the studio? Or is that just a different thing that's happening in that in that studio yeah, theatre? Like it's, balanced, it's very hard yeah. to tell. Because but it is still um, Victor Spinetti, isn't it? So he's still yeah, directing it's the that. Same director, and they and they are getting them in and between 
different Maybe setups there. In what the pace of TV recording was like then, and you were the people were recording sem- several things simultaneously, running from a control room to control room. Who knows? Yeah. Um, anyway. Um, so yeah. So that was my only criticism. I like the long tracking shot during "Tell Me Why" from the back of the stage, looking out on the final concert. Mm. There's a really good long. Beatles you can see view. Dick Lester actually in that. Can you? Oh, cool. Yeah, he, he walks across the very front of the stage. You can you can see him from when they're shooting from behind the band. It's a really good shot because you get a Beatles. That's his Alfred Hitchcock cameo style moment. Oh, <laughs> great. Um, yeah, and the concert at the end, uh, the only thing I'd say is that, that nowadays, post Get Back, I just want the whole thing. Even though I'm sh- I know it's... I, I, you know, I don't know what they set up there. If they did just run the whole concert and just filmed it a few times, but you know, now you just wish that they just had. I mean, I take it that doesn't exist. No, I won't do. But they would have done it though, wouldn't they? They wouldn't have just gone now play the twenty oh, yeah, seconds. Yeah. They would have just played. No, they'd have played. They'd have mimed the full songs. They yeah. would have essentially done a mimed concert. Yeah. probably a couple of times through. But yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting to essentially end a film with a highlight reel of a live show, but it also it does mean that they can whack a load of numbers in. And it is the, the the culmination of what the whole film's meant to be about. Um, I like the extreme close-ups that are good because of the syncing with the tracks is so spot on with them. They're, they're really good. And they, they kind of flip between the extreme close-ups of the boys singing and the crowd reaction shots with the screaming girls and boys. And there's a bit of a, if you want to draw a comparison there, there's a bit of a, they're there singing, giving it their all, and the crowd are there screaming, giving it their all, and they're giving the same kind of camera space to them both. There's something being drawn there, I don't know, something arty or whatnot. Um, so um, I'm going to give production because I think it is great and I also love the crispness of the image and I know that's just a oh I'd got the Blu-ray finally for the yeah. first time given that I I was t- saying this to my partner and because um, we both grew up watching this on VHS yeah and, and as did me and you as yeah. well as kids and so I'm so used to having seen it on VHS for the majority of my life that when I got the DVD, that was great. Mm. But then I this week I got the Blu-ray finally, and that's a brilliant restoration, the 50th anniversary restoration ah, okay. in 2014. And I noticed details in the art direction and things on the on the walls and, and sort of expressions writ large. That I'm so used to just the sound of the film and the, sort yeah. of the, the bubbling across of the language mm. uh, that it's nice to actually now have the visuals sort of as crisp as they can be. Yeah. So, yeah, very good, that Blu-ray restoration. I, I don't know if... Well, I've watched it on a popular streaming service. I don't know, I'm not the BBC. I watched it on Amazon Prime. And um, I, I guess that's the, the HD version. It was very, very, very clear. So, I'm giving it, for production, 85. Righto. Very, they did a very good job. So, we'll move on to uh, performances now. Um, just a couple of uh, standout bits. So I've kind of just written down some bits I like. Maybe first I'll start off with my best bits, I think. Hey. Cue lots of you quoting, I'm sure. <laughs> so John's best bit, my favourite bit for John, is pausing at the police station before running off again. Okay, yeah. So when they do the chase and they get back, all the way around the chase, back at the police station, and they're, taking, they're trying to get his breath, 
and it's just his timing. Yeah, he looks. He checks with all of them. So check is everyone all right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Catches the eye of the policeman. Looks like he's about to say something. Puts up his finger. Carries on running. Just really good. Oh, that's also there's a section there where there's a bit of a tiny bit of surrealism sneaks in because John runs out pursued by policemen. Yeah. Uh, and then he he's the last one out as well. Yeah, he's that, clearly just run around the set and come round the back, the back and left the bill again. But that's what happened. I mean, yeah, because the the first time they run out the building, Ringo's last person out. Yeah, but then he ends up with them, being chased by the police, even though he's after everybody. Yeah, yeah, that whole Keystone Cops type of sequence is the most slapstick it gets, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, and also it doesn't actually make sense why they're chasing the Beatles. No, none of it does. <laughs> <laughs> really? No. Because no. it makes sense why they take Grandfather in. It's for his own safety. Yeah. And Ringo's been taken in because they don't recognise him. They don't know who he is and he's, he's, they've got reason to. They think he's a But when the Beatles run up to the police station, why do the police all then just chase the Beatles? No, no, they, it, just because they needed a chase. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A bit so, of fun in that bit. Don't think about it too much. And John's got loads of good bits. Now, don't get me wrong. Oh, John's, I just, John's brilliant. He, he, he's he's in his element when he's getting to be cheeky and and stuff. And yeah, I, I think he it's uh, his his personality shines through. Excuse me, have you seen that little old man we were walking out of the blessed freedom of it all? Have you got a nail file? These handcuffs are killing me. I was named the innocence. I don't want to go. Sorry for disturbing you, girls. I bet you can't guess what I was in for. Um, so, yeah, great stuff. Uh, Ringo, obviously, is day out. You know, is... Ringo's day out. Is, is, is a kind of a... The highlight, and I, I know the story that he was massively hung over, wasn't he? Yeah. When he was doing that sequence, and they were just like, "Can you just kind of walk around a bit?" But he just does manage to make what. I mean, if if he had just walked around a bit, it would have been rubbish. But he. Yeah, you know. it's always you know they over exaggerate that sort of stuff. Yeah, he might have not been at his uh, peak. Um, no. Of of awakeness, but you know it's still directed sequence. You've yeah. Still got his interaction with the kids, um, all the stuff in the pub. Yeah. The, you know all the different bits and pieces it's just a lot to give one of them when they weren't actors and it's where yeah. we but who see. turns out to be the actor out of the Beatles it's Ringo which is good because interesting though because his first line in the film <laughs> is either perfectly pitched to be silly on purpose or very bad acting that just makes it funny hello grandfather hello he can talk then can he of course he can talk he's a human being isn't he well, if it's your grandfather, who knows? Ha, ha, ha. Well, if it's your grandfather, who knows? Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> exactly. It's just so funny, that line. And it's like, I think I think it's nerves, isn't it? And Yeah, apparently they, because they actually filmed that stuff first. Yeah. This is their first sort of time on film. So they were all absolutely cringing themselves inside out doing all that stuff. Yeah. And so maybe he has sort of... It, were, it wears on with them a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I think that yeah, it, it, the difference between that clip and and but how he is by the time he's doing all that visual stuff at the end and and his interaction with Grandad and everything, he's he he really he, he quite clear why Ringo ends up being such a feature um, in the next film along, especially um, George is just kind of cool all the way through. Yeah, he's he, eating and drinking a lot of the time. He's always got yeah. Um, 
have a bun in his hand or something. <laughs> but he, he, he gets his big feature moment with the um, the trendsetter, which is always a scene that I kind of forget about. Oh, I love it. It's so good. Yeah, it's an interesting... It's a great scene, but it's... it's Yeah, when I, when I watched it last year for the first time in a while, I was like, oh, yeah, I've forgotten all about this bit. That's so, yeah, he wanders accidentally into this TV production room, doesn't yeah. he? And he gets... Uh, the thing I like about that is the way George allows it to happen to him. Yeah. He could have just said, no, I'm going. Yeah. But sort of they they drag him into this office and he gets to sort of, uh, you know, an early clue to the new direction is my favourite line in that. Like he's, which is because that's what the Beatles were doing this. Yeah. It's like, this is the new direction. This is what's happening. Well, this is another one of those moments where the whole thing is about someone older and stuffier trying to tell them what, yeah, you know, to, it's the industry yeah. trying to t- try to tell them what uh, what they want. You s- just kids, aren't you? Yeah. Like someone like George, Kenneth Haig playing Simon Marshall, yeah. with his assistants and things. Don't breathe on me, Adrian. <laughs> and and him, him, him coin, well, coining the phrase "grotty" is he there? He's it, it, he's popularising the the use of "grotty" there, isn't he? Well, yeah, it's grotty for grotesque apparently this is its first appearance on film and in the right. novelization of the film it's its first appearance in print right okay you know as, as regards the dictionary's uh, sort of derivation of the word but yeah it would have been around well at least he's polite show him the shirts adrian now you'll like these you'll really dig them that fab and all the other pimply hyperboles i wouldn't be seen dead in them the dead grotty grotty yeah, grotesque. Make a note of that word and give it to Susan. I mean, they, the Beatles said they'd never heard it, but Alan Owen said it was a Liverpool phrase. Mm. So it might have been, I don't know, maybe it was a Toxteth phrase. I mean, yeah. they're all from Wavertree or thereabouts. But yeah, it's another another one, like when he goes in there and he twangs the sculptures, don't see many of those nowadays and yeah. stuff. That's he- one of the lines I use quite a lot. <laughs> you know, just as, as you can use that in all sorts of circumstances. Just as any, yeah, it's he, he's just got a... A coolness about him, a, a kind of a yeah, a sarky coolness about him as well. Um, yeah, and low energy as well, a purposeful low energy, you know, very George. Yeah. So then, Paul. Now, although we did not you, Paul, the no. other one. Um, I assumed so. Although I'm, you know, I made a little joke about his scene getting cut because of his acting, because I think it's kind of common knowledge that he never felt very comfortable acting or wasn't didn't feel very good at it or whatever he does a huge amount of heavy lifting in the opening train scene and i think yeah, he, he does get, and i think he's very good i was thinking yeah. about this yeah he's very good in that opening section particularly i don't think he has as much good stuff to do later on no. necessarily and they cut his main his main solo scene but having read the script and read the version of it in the novelization as well it's yeah. like this does not add anything to the film at all right so I don't know that it was necessarily that Paul was a problem in it. It's just not a very good sequence. It's yeah. a rightly cut, I think, well, as far as I could yeah. tell from what you know, evidence there is. But I think he does really good. He does a huge amount of um, of heavy lifting. And he does have to play um, the uh, annoyed grandson throughout with a kind of like, you know, his, his, little, his little seething about his, his stirring granddad and all, you know, he, he does well. I mean, he, he gets a bit pointy fingery now and again. He has a kind of a, an acting finger that he brings out. <laughs> yes. To, to make his point. But he, I think he does really good. Well, what happened? The old fella said that could he have these pictures and Norm said no and all I said was, 
Well, why not be big about it? And? Your grandfather pointed out that Shape was always being taller than me just to spite me. I knew it. He started it. I should have known. Drew up. You two have never had an argument in your life. And in two minutes flat, he's got you at it. He's a king mixer. He hates group unity, so he gets everyone at it. Well, I suggest you just give him the photos and have done with it. He's, you can tell he's not hes not like a John who, who, who can really play the fool. But then that's just a reflection of them again, how they were on stage as well, wasn't it? You know, Paul came out and was all, you know, he'd introduce the songs and he'd have his, his star moment to do his kind of big romantic song and all that stuff. And John would quite often play the fool and things. It's it's very, very um, reflective of who they are. So I think they, they do a good performance of themselves. Yeah, well, there's a little bit again in Rave magazine where Alan Owen's saying how I see him, he says. Um and just to summarise it, he sort of says, John is the rebel, a born anarchist. Mm. George is quiet and mannerly. He's polite, etc. Listen and take an interest if anyone talks to him. Uh, Ringo is a firecracker uh, with a grin and a bright remark. Paul has heart, the Beatle with a sense of responsibility. I liked them as soon as I met them last autumn, reported Owen. They're my kind of people. They are much more amusing and fantastic offstage than on. <laughs> Great stuff. That's really cool to know as well, isn't it? Because you, you you get that sense that it isn't. No, it, it 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 really was true that dynamic that you think that they are. There was really what how it was, but um, yeah. But we'll get into some of the more characterization of them, I guess, with the script. I'll try and stick a bit more. So we've we kind of um, yeah, John's moments. I know I said about his slapstick moments, but you got the. I, I bet you can't guess what I was in for a bit, and you got the <laughs> the bath bit. You got his fluttering his eyelids at the man on the train. So talk about the man on the train, shall we? Go on then. Richard Vernon. Oh, yeah. Brilliant actor, Richard Vernon. Gary, do you know how old he was when he was filming that sequence? Oh, don't So tell. he's playing the old fuddy-duddy who was in the war, yeah. isn't he, essentially? I don't say he's like as old as one of us is. <laughs> is he 43? No, he's 38. What? What? When he was filming that. <laughs> what? What do you mean he's 38? What was up with him? Yeah, he, he always looked much older than he was, which is why he ended up in all those sorts of roles all the time. Oh, blimey. But he's brilliant, Richard Vernon. I enjoy him in everything I've seen him in. Yeah. Um, he's got he's got a very lovely face, really, but he's playing this sort of hard-faced man yeah. in this. And, uh, yeah, but <laughs> he's 38. Gosh. That's a bit like um, what's his face in Dad's Army that you always find out was the youngest one of the cast, wasn't he? Clive Dunn, yeah. yeah. Well, bear in mind as well, of course, the other main star of this film is Wilfred Bramble. Yes. It was obviously known as, as you know, Steptoe. Steptoe, yeah. Um, playing the dirty old man, playing the clean old man in this one. Yeah. He was only 52. Yeah. Yeah, I wondered if he was a bit younger than he looked, you know, and then he comes across and he get, he was one of these ones who gets the granddad roles. Yeah, definitely. And um, so, yeah, Wilfred Bramble obviously puts in an excellent turn as the granddad. Sleazy, cheeky, devious Steptoe after a bath, basically. He's got that steptoe yeah. about him, but he's 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 more upright, he's clean. <laughs> um and yeah, he's stirring is great. He's got, got such a devious little face, hasn't he? I bet I mean he turned it to his advantage, but he's got such a little it's, it's yeah. dirty little devious little grin he kind of yeah, smirked. he's much he's much less gurning than a, than he is a steptoe because obviously remember he was very well known by this point as, yeah. as steptoe and yeah. he'd been in other things as well but he's very well known as steptoe 
who is very much gurning sort of deviousness. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, who, and then Steptoe's thing as well is then putting on the, oh, I've been hurt, you've hurt oh, me. Yeah, you do type thing. Oh, yeah, no. Whereas in this, it's much more, there's... It's it's quite a static performance, but then it, the, the looks that flash across his face. Oh yeah, he's, he's, are brilliant. Yeah. Those little sort of uh, sly eyes and things like that. He absolutely makes it because you needed someone with the, his experience and gravitas to sit in the centre with them yeah. to give that you know as good as the boys are. You c- couldn't rely yeah, on knowing yeah, yeah. they were going to be until the camera started. <laughs> Really, whereas with this guy, you knew you could be, you know, you knew, they knew what they were going to get. Ah, so you are a man after all. What's that mean? Do you think I haven't noticed? Do you think I wasn't aware of the drift? And you poor unfortunate scruff. They've driven you into books with our cruel, unnatural treatment, exploiting your good nature. I don't know. Ah, I shall that lot never happy unless they're jeering you. And where'd they be without the steady support of your drumbeat? That's what I'd like to know. Yeah, that's right. And he doesn't disappoint. It's great. Um, got a mention, a little mention for George's future wife, Patty Boyd. Yes, she's in there. Popping yeah. up. She doesn't get to doesn't say anything, does she? But she's one she of the... She says one word, prisoners. Does she? Yeah. Is that when they kind of turn up? Because it's when Paul's trying to give them... <laughs> Paul goes in with the top, uh, the, top the bowler oh, yes, hat. Yes, I'd ask yeah. you myself, only I'm shy. Yeah. And then Grandad interrupts, don't fraternise with me prisoners. And she says, prisoners. And that's her one line yeah. in the film. And that's where she met George. Yeah, that's where yeah. she met George. And many legends were born that day. Indeed. Yes. So, yeah, I mean... Um, yeah, I, but the I, cast I, is rounded out by such amazing people like Norman Rossington and John Junkin, both brilliant yeah, comic as, performers, as, and uh, Norman Rossington, quite a good writer as well. Victor Spinetti, yeah. who we'll talk about lots over the coming weeks. Yes, brilliant as the um, as the uh, just fantastic stressed um, studio director. You get Derek Guiler as the police sergeant. He had been quite well known. He's another northern actor. Uh, yeah, and they're like some quite a bunch of uncredited people as well. So like the the nightclub dancer is Jeremy Lloyd of the the writing partnership Lloyd and Croft. Right. So he was an actor as well as a writer before coming up with Are You Being Served in a Low a Low. Right. You know, and I love his sequences in this. Um, yeah. He's doing his stupid dancing and challenging Ringo to sort of copy him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Derek Nim- Derek Nimmo, another really f- famous comic actor, is uncredited as Leslie Jackson and his uh, ten slash nine doves. Oh, of course, yes, yeah, that's a good moment. No, it's um, they're all very good, and I don't think anyone let it down. Um, I think everyone does very well. Um, yeah. uh, there's no one who gets. There's no need for a great big dramatic performance because it's not that kind of a film. So for that reason, I've given it ninety. 90. Good enough. Good enough. Four performances. Which, other than the song scores, which I'll get on to, leaves us just with script. So we've talked about performances, so we're going to have touched on a lot of this. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get through it a bit more. But um, this is some of the, the, you know, the actual words that they're saying, rather than how they're saying them. Um, I, I like the recurring puns throughout things like the, um, he's very clean, isn't he? Obviously. Yeah. And You're about, a swine. Yeah. Um, about the stop being taller than me, um, kind of lines with the um, yeah. Norman, um, yeah, Norm, Norman Shake, yeah, Norman Shake, the the two roadies. I like that, that, that just that build up of this kind of world of little repeating jokes and things. Um, 
I think it's just got such a language of its own. It just yeah. that it just it just bubbles in its own little way. It's it, the cadence of the way they speak, like the bit with with John and and the character Millie, which is Anna Quayle, when oh, she yeah. says, "You know, you don't look like him at all." But the, yeah. the language of the way they talk to each other. Well, I've always found it. I've always found that bit kind of baffling. But it is baffling because, because why it, would she, it doesn't make sense? But no, but but it's got that. It's just got that joy of language. Yeah, and and. But it has a rhythm about it. There's, that's yeah. the point. You know that they wrote that. As a, that's the point of that scene. Hello. Hello. Oh, wait a minute. Don't no, I'm not. You oh, you are. I'm not. Oh, you are. I know you are. I'm not, no. You look just like him. Do I? You're the first one that said that ever. There's some brave stances from the script. I'm going back to what I said before about the um, defiance. stuff. So early on when... The man in the train, whose name I can't remember already. Um, Richard Vernon. Yeah. Richard Vernon says... I, technically, that character's name is Johnson. Johnson says, I fought the war for your sort. And then Ringo says... I bet you saw you won. Yes. It's a brave stance from a script at the time. I know it's quite... Yeah, I think so. I think it does represent the, the, you know, the generation difference. Yeah. He's putting a very so, definite marker down for the generation they're aiming at. And kind of good on them. It kind of especially resonates when you think to kind of the get, the get back Vox Pops later down the line. Yes, yeah, yeah. Very of the true. people on the street going, well, I've got, got to the shops today. There's this music in the way. Am I supposed to go to the shops with the music playing? It was what it was just, you know, that attitude, that entitled attitude of just because you're older <laughs> and, you know, the, the, yeah. the, for some reason, you've got some kind of um, entitlement to to an to a, a opinion and a joyless opinion. So I think that's that's good, and I do a bit of that quite quite a lot. Um, just old men moaning and thinking they own everything. Um, yeah, so they make Ringo quite verbose, don't they? He's always yes, yeah, talking. So considering it's the active compensatory factor, that's it. Yeah, it's about talking about his psychological patterns and inferiority complex. Hiding behind yeah. a smokescreen of bourgeois cliches and all that stuff. I mean, considering in the cartoon he ended up being someone who never says anything but yeah, oh, yes. Uh, like um, it's it's quite a. I like those bits of his script, and he, he can. I think it's interesting handle. though. They give him those sort of lines, and then in the press conference scene, he's the one who just seems like the most like he's suddenly just being Ringo Starr, not Ringo. Yeah, the character. he's kind of thrown into it a bit, isn't he? Yeah, he's just sort of like, you know. Yeah. It, it, it's funny, whereas the others are very, we're doing joke answers. He's he's a bit like he would actually be. Yeah. Which is interesting. So he's either being very natural about, with his acting style, or they, he's less scripted than the others. Or they, I don't they, think it says anything anywhere in the script, though, talking about that sequence. Yeah. Um, it, I bet it doesn't say in the script, John writes a rude word on his pad and shows it to the... Yeah, shows it to the interview. You know what the word is? What? Tits. <laughs> John. You may need to bleep that. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Again, we're not I don't know if anyone listening to this is offended. But there's the fact that this is in a film in 1964, and you could just, once you know it, you could see him writing it on the pad. <laughs> right. you have you any hobbies? And he just writes tits and shows it to <laughs> Oh, I'll have to look that up. I'll have to watch that bit again now. See if I can follow the pencil. Terrible um, man. Yeah, we've got all those. We've got um, all those lines from that, which obviously a great bit of script work. Those the bits with you know what do you call that a hairstyle or Arthur? Yeah. What do you start call that collar? 
at a collar. Yeah, collar. Um, yeah, yeah, all that. Um, we've got some nice one little one-liners. I think it's George. Hey, have any of you lot put a man in the cupboard? Is it George who says that? Yeah, he's the first one. Yeah. There. Oh, no, it's not. No, Ringo's first. Did you not get on with it? We're going to do them. But oh, I will now, now, now. Hey, any of you lot put a man in the cupboard? Man, Well, somebody did. Ringo goes to the cupboard first and sees the, the waiter in there in his pants. Yeah. Then George goes over to confirm. Yeah. I like the fact that he doesn't get them out. No, he just closes them. Just covered. covered. Yeah. And then Shake goes and puts his coat in and brings him out. Yeah, and again with the, with the script, um, back to the trendsetter office again. After George has a little ogle at the um, secretary putting her shoes on, um, we get this pushing against the self-proclaimed authority of the trendsetter who insists he knows what kids want. I think it's another fascinating insight into the ethos of this film in general. It, yeah, it, it it's 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 great, um, and also and, it's 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 people watching at the time would have known as well, sort of what they were parodying a little bit more. Yeah. there. Uh, that sort of lost a bit to the mists of yeah, the mists of time the, for the modern audience. The reference it's now are, general, but it was a bit yeah. more specific then. It's interesting though because you realise you know in this world of influences and stuff, which always feels really horribly, sickeningly modern and annoying to me it's not at all it's just that no, the no. medium has changed and it's just it used to be on tv now yeah. it can be an individual in the in their house yeah so um yeah so i and there's a really nice bit of script in the kid's description of his day bunking off when ringo's um you know on ringo's day out when he talks to the kids yeah. and there's there's this parallel drawn between the gang the yeah, gang and his gang. gang yeah and that's great. It's, 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 that, that gets a proper slice of life here a little bit when he talks about, you know. That's lovely talk, Dad. Isn't why aren't you at school? I'm deserter. Oh, you know. Yeah, I've blown school out. Just you? No. Ginger, Eddie Fallon and Ding Dong. Oh, Ding Dong Ballet? Yeah, that's right. They were supposed to come with us, but they chickened. Yeah? They're your mates, are they? Yeah. I want to cop without them, isn't it? Oh, it's all right. Ringo's missing his gang, isn't he? And he sees them and, you know. Yeah. It's it's great, and that that also links up with. So you think you've got, so then Paul's granddad, you know, Wilfred Bramble, ends up working with those kids to get to sneak back into the studio. It's not the, it's not the same kids. Is it not the kids. same kids? No. No. Oh. Due to them having different faces. Oh, is that all? Well, they're all kids. But if whether they're the same kids or not, what we end up having. No, <laughs> yeah, well, they're not. <laughs> but it doesn't. What I mean is, it doesn't affect my point. Is that. We end up with three generations of troublemakers. We have the granddad generation, and we have the younger boys who are the true ones and the ones who let him into the, back into yeah. the studio, and the Beatles. And it only really leaves us middle-aged stiffs as the baddies in the film, really. Yes. So, um, yeah, I think it's it kind of it really does set, set out its stall. Um, yeah, so that's that's just some points from the script I like. There's obviously loads and loads. And oh, we could just we could just turn this into a quotathon. Yeah, sort of done a little bit, but uh, I just remember seeing this very, very. You know, it's quite early on. I think my love of the Beatles is is founded not just on the music, which is obviously the 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 key component. Yeah, of their of why I love the Beatles, but it's founded on the fact that I got this quite early. This and the Beatles complete documentary. Yeah, yeah. Although I think I got help before this, to be honest. Mm. Um. But to have this and the music together, have that script 
giving me that version of the Beatles, making me yeah. want to be like, that's what it would be like to be a Beatle, to be in a band, you know, is mm. to my little tiny brain. Yeah. And the I, best thing about when you when you are in a band, you know, it doesn't have to be a, the, the world's biggest band like the Beatles, but when there's when you've got a really nice dynamic of group of people, the same with groups of friends or in other circumstances as well. Hmm. When you get that dynamic where you sort of all know how to talk to each other and the outside world is something slightly different. Yeah. That's always very interesting and that's just yeah, I've said that before anyway. No. Repeat it's myself. a point it's a point worth making twice. Thank you. So, I'm going to give it for script 85. Um, and that just leaves a rundown of the songs. I'm not going to go through them all, but I'll, these are the songs um, in the film. Um, and this is how I ranked them. I think they're in order of ranking score. Yes, they are. So, yes, they are. That's just how I've copied them into my notes. So, this is how I ranked them in series one. Now, a lot of these seem, seem low... <laughs> To me, to, to my ears now. Um, See, yeah. Because they've changed context, haven't they? Now, yeah, it's they have different. changed context, but it's because they are in the context of the entire catalogue and the way they were recorded and how well they were produced and things. Um, but you seem to gloss over that with all the visuals and everything, don't you? You know, you don't think so much about oh, that's, that that runs a bit too reverby. You're just taken away with it all. But um, yeah, basically, we've got and I love her. Um, I won't do them all, but at the top was And I Love It, which I gave 71.7. At the bottom was I'm Happy Just to Dance With You, which I gave 33, which is a great song, but I think there's production issues. And we've got a whole range in between. And I Love Her in a Hard Day's Night up at the, up at the top. Um, yeah, so the average of all the scores of the songs put together was 50.7, um, which is to do with my early years prejudice, really, just because of putting them on the scale but within the context of this film they, they're so good they, they, they're so good and as they are anyway but, yeah you know but um as i say it's a scale of good to great so yeah when i add that score into the mix with the scores i've given for everything else a hard day's night comes out with an overall of 76.7 wowzers trousers <laughs> your new catchphrase no, no, I've stolen that from uh, the brilliant sitcom Fags, Mags and Bags on Radio 4. Oh, okay, well, fair enough. Um, so, we can't do a chart rundown, well, we can, but it'll be very brief. At number one, A Hard Day's Night. <laughs> um, but I think um, it's a good marker. Yeah. Do you want a couple of contemporary reviews from the period? Do it. Yeah, The Times, 7th of July, 1964. Uh, let's see. One nice thing about this first film to star the Beatles, it is not, by any manner of means, the usual sort of thing British filmmakers come up with to exploit the latest showbiz sensation. Mm. Indeed, if anything, it goes rather too far the other way. It is so rough and grainy, so choppy and new wave in its editing, so obtrusively handheld in its camera work, mm. that by the end, more than a little dazzled and deafened, one may find oneself thinking back nostalgically to the good old straightforward days of orchestra wives. So that's, that's a little snippet from the Times review, right. but it's a, almost exactly what you'd expect a Times review of this film to be. Yeah. I mean, it's sort, it's sort of good, although it does have stuff where it says like, also the handling of actors does not seem to be Mr. Lester's strong suit. What? A number of usually excellent players like Mr. Victor Spinetti and Miss Anna Quayle seem ill at ease as the film flash, flashes past them. I yeah. think they're brilliant. Yeah, it's just... I mean, Victor Spinetti's getting that... <laughs> that yeah. It's a plot. A plot. 
Yeah, no, that, that's, that's, that's someone who doesn't understand subtlety of any in any shape or form. They wouldn't yeah. understand subtlety, Paul, if it slapped them round the face. Well, there you go. The irony being that he's sort of calling for more subtlety, but he's actually <laughs> no, he's missing uh, it. He's missing yeah. it. That's the their sort of performances. They're not brief it. review from the Sunday Mirror, twelfth of July, nineteen sixty four. Slightly different sort of newspaper. Mm. Uh, the Beatles' new film, A Hard Day's Night, will surely silence those critics who have been forecasting their imminent decline and fall. Not only do these lads prove they're a thousand screams above any other pop idols, but each has the magic quality that makes a great star. In a story that could be an authentic 36 hours in their lives, there's a Chaplin-esque Ringo, a Jack Lemon John Lennon, that's a tongue twister, a Cary Grant Paul McCartney, and an individualistic George Harrison. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay. That's and... It. Yeah, fellow Liverpoolian Alan Owen has written brilliant dialogue that fits these scouses like skins, and the inspired direction of Dick Lester adds up to a movie not to be missed. I think I'd go with that review. Yeah. And I think that reviewer is having a sideways snipe at that first reviewer with, you know, there was a lot of... The first reviewer was the guy sitting on the train, basically. Yes, definitely. Was that, a, he was the Times guy. Yeah. He was a Johnson, and um, Johnson. Who, <laughs> he was a Johnson. He was a Johnson in all meanings. Yeah. Um, who must have spent ten, twenty, thirty years, however long they had left of their life, going? They're gonna. No one's gonna like them this time next year. They're flushing the pan. Well, they likely have lasted ten years, but they'll have no legacy, and just never being right about anything because they're just stuck up. Yeah, I did have. I got the review from the uh, New York Times as well, from when it opened in America. It's a very long review hmm. by Bosley Crowther, uh, and I'll try and pick a couple of points out of it here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has so much good humour going for it; it's actually awfully hard to resist. Mm. Uh, more than this it's a fine conglomeration of madcap clowning in the old Marx Brothers style and it is done with such a dazzling use of camera that it tickles the intellect and electrifies the nerves Mm. it is much more sophisticated in theme and technique than its seemingly frivolous matter promises and then I skip down unless you know the fellows it is hard to identify them except for Ringo Starr the big nosed one Uh, (laughs) which is I guess before you know I just, I just because I know them so well. Yeah, you, you, at the time, if you hadn't, it's hard to TV. imagine that you wouldn't know who they all yeah, were. You'd have to have seen them on the TV appearances, wouldn't you? You'd have to have watched them because you wouldn't be watching them on video, or you know, this this must have, you know, and if you didn't, if you heard their music only on the radio, you wouldn't necessarily know what they looked like, would you? Sure, he says, the frequent and brazen yah yah yahing. Why don't I spell yeah, yeah, yeah properly? Of the fellows when they break into song may be grating. To ears not tuned to it, it has moronic monotony, but it is always relieved by pictorial compositions that suggest travesties or at least intelligent awareness of the absurdity of the Beatle craze. Okay. So that's. I that's, kind of agree with him, but I also totally disagree no, with him. No, it's just. That's. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that one. But, um. Okay. Well, there we go. Well, our review, as we've just finished it, <clears throat> is we think it's fab. So, that's that then, I think. It is. So, we will be back next week, hopefully, or soon after if not, with help. Help! Until then, good Beatles. Merry Beatles. <laughs>